Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Mark had given us a call to worship at the beginning that said, quoting Hebrews, that said um, that God's mercy is for us in our time of need. Mercy is for us in our time of need. The challenge, as I see it in the modern church, is that we have reinterpreted that scripture to say that God gives us mercy in our time of excuse, right? Or for our excuse. Uh, But that's not what the Bible says. God has not given us mercy as an excuse. We get to sin. We get to keep walking in whatever we want to do. Instead, he's given us mercy because if it wasn't for his mercy, the weight of our wickedness, the weight of our imperfection would crush us far more than the issues of life. How many of you know that? It would crush us. We would not be able to endure. We would not be able to move forward. But his mercy is given so that we can continue to run back to the Father, boldly approaching the throne of grace. I've said this a million times. He doesn't tell us that we're allowed to brashly approach the throne of grace, (laughs) right? We're allowed to boldly approach the throne of grace. That's the mercy to help us in our time of need. So as we think about uh, this today, I hope you will appeal to the mercy of God. I hope you will appeal to his mercy for help, not for excuse. Not so that you can get away with more stuff, (laughs) Darn our elder said. Okay, so this is, this is killing me. Anyway, would you pray with me, church? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how beautiful it is and how amazing it uh, instructs us and guides us and teaches us and shapes us. We ask, Lord, that it would be, um, we ask that it would be ever in our minds and our hearts. Lord, we want to be a people of your word. We want to be led by your spirit, and we want to be a people of your word because those two things are perfectly married together. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that it helps us in our time of need. Thank you that it allows us, enables us, encourages us to run back to you in everything. We love you and we praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat, guys. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 119. I know that's a shocker to you, but Psalm 119, and this morning we're going to spend our time in verses 9 through 16. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. When you get there, say amen. I like quick people. It makes me happy. Psalm 119, get a digital Bible. Yeah. What, about, what about slow people? Get a digital Bible. There, I'm there. That's great. Okay, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. These are the words of God. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. 
Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your words. Last week, uh, we ended verse. Uh, we ended with verse six, and I I want to provide a few closing remarks to last week's sermon uh, before we move into this week's. And we're going to focus on verses seven and eight first. So if you have your Bibles there, you can you can look at those as we go. As you remember, David's opening uh, statement in Psalm one nineteen was, "How blessed are those whose way is blameless." who walk in the law of the Lord. David then establishes who the they are. That was what we wanted to talk about last week, being a part of the they. They are those who, say that ten times fast, they are those who walk in God's ways. We also learned that God's ways were uh, ordained that we should walk in them. What we mean by that, what I mean by that, is that the purpose of God's word being given was so that we would obey it so that we would walk in it, that we would live by it. And we see that in verse 4. And that we need to be established is another piece that we talked about last week. We see that in verse 5. I believe that this walking in God's ways and the need to be established is actually uh, an extension or something that is extended to all image bearers. And I encourage you to study Psalm 105 verse 8 this week if you get a chance. It's very encouraging. But uh, what we do know for sure in this first eight verses of Psalm 119 is that it uh, is that at the pivot point of verse 4, David includes himself in the psalm for the very first time. David inserts himself into Jewish life and says, not that he's not already there, but he inserts himself into being a they and wanting to obey God's word with everything that he's got. He's declared his desire to be counted among the they and called out to God, asking him to teach him his statutes and to empower him to walk in them. Uh, And here's where we find the two essential components of last week's message. David knew that he had to be established by God. This is a declaration of righteousness that must be uh, given to each and every one of us. That happens by grace through faith. And then he knows that he needs to be instructed by God. And our instruction comes many ways. And we're going to zoom in on instruction as the uh, the main thrust of today's message. So to sum it up, the genuinely blessed walk in God's ways... God's ways are found inside of his word. They were designed and put there for that purpose. And David humbly looks to God for knowledge and ability to walk in those ways all the, day of his, all the days of his life. But verses 7 and 8 show us two really uh, important or critical principles that we don't want to miss. Verse 7 says, uh, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Within one single verse, guys, David taught us an unbelievable amount about worship. So if you're a worshiper, if you're a person who really does uh, enjoy worship, you need to hear this. David worshiped and gave thanks with an upright heart, notice this, when he learned God's righteous judgments. Note the order. He worshiped when he learned God's righteous judgments. We learn God's word. And then worship comes. Here's another way to look at it. Step one, we learn God's ways. Step two, we obey. What's the result? Worship according to the scripture. 
this principle is why we need songs of rich biblical truth. Now, I'm not suggesting that we, we merely need to sing right words, although I do believe we need to sing right words. We need to be singing God's words. But why we sing them is because they teach us, they inform us. Living a worshipful life with an upright heart means that we learn, even as we sing, God's truth. We learn that and we sing it in joy. And then what happens is we walk it out. That's what worship is all about, church. So we walk this out. This is what having an upright heart truly means, according to the scripture. This is worshiping in spirit and in truth. This is what it means to present your body as a living sacrifice. This is the kind of heart worship that God says is holy and pleasing to him. So what is it again, church? It is we've learned God's word and then we do it. We learn God's word and then we do it. We have to keep in mind a little bit of a little bit of. the broader picture of the Bible, right? One of the things that we should keep in mind is what the Bible teaches about the heart. First, we learn that whatever is in the heart comes out of your life, and it comes out specifically of your mouth a lot. How many of you know that? Can I get an amen? <laughs> that, was, that was good. Leo's like, yep, sorry. Anyway, so Matthew 12, 34, we find that. This is why we are called to guard our heart. But here's another really important piece. We also learn uh, from Solomon that out of the heart flow the issues of life. So what should we do? We should be filling our heart with truth. We should be filling our heart with biblical truth. Why? Because what goes into your heart is going to flow out at some point. So you need to be putting in what God says you need to be putting in. Now, I want you to take note of this. What we say comes out of our heart. Can I get an amen? What we do proceeds from our heart. Can I get an amen? But that scripture says the issues of life also come from the heart. The issues of life. How many of you are sick of the issues of our world? Yeah, well, guess what? They've come from human hearts that were not submitted to King Jesus. They were not submitted to his word. It's one thing to say that your heart uh, overflows into your speech or that your heart overflows into your actions. But the truth is the heart overflows into the issues of our life. The fact that we are a people who murder more babies than anybody else in the world is a fact that our hearts are twisted and broken and sinful. The fact that we have called good evil and evil good is a a revelation of uh, the darkness of our heart, the sinfulness of our heart. The issues of life are flowing, and they're flowing in a negative way because people aren't submitted to King Jesus, and they're surely not submitted to his word. This is why the only solution to what ails our country and our world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can try, as you might, to twist people's arms into being more moral. But I will bet you that we can find non-believers, some non-believers, that are probably more moral than you are. I'll bet you we can. What's that matter? They're still, their righteous deeds are still filthy rags before God. 
There is one thing that sets us right, and that is the gospel of Jesus. And when the gospel comes into our heart, when the gospel is true in our minds, when it fills this heart, it comes out of our mouths, it comes out of our actions, and it changes the issues in our world. The church must stop believing that if we elect the right politician or we make the right change here or there, we're going to change the world. We're not going to change the world that way. Should we be concerned about that? Heck yeah. Yeah, we should be concerned about that through the lens of the gospel, not separated from it. Okay, so the Christian says, well, I'm doing my part. I'm just going to change things politically. I'm going to change things in my city, whatever. Yes, that's, that's a nice effort, but the Bible says you're changing it the wrong way. You change it through proclaiming Jesus Christ. That is the only way. I believe it was Tim Keller who said that everybody worships something. The only choice, is, uh, the only choice we get is what to worship. Or we could quote uh, Bob Dylan, the famous prophet, right? So you're going to serve the devil or you're going to serve the Lord, but the truth is you're going to serve somebody, right? And you're going to worship that somebody. But the connection between the heart and what comes out of our life is this connection. It proves who we worship, Okay? So if you, are a, if you are a mean person, if you're constantly angry, if you're constantly uh, looking different than the fruit of the Spirit, but calling yourself a Christian, you worship something very different. You do not worship King Jesus. You worship your opinion, you worship your attitude, you worship your way, and by God, you're going to be right no matter what. This is dangerous. This is dangerous. Every one of us is called to submit. We're called to submit. We need to trust Jesus and his ways. Those are the right ways, church. Those are the right ways. So all of this is teaching us something about worship. Please remember this. We do not come to church to get our Jesus on, or whatever you might say, or in order to experience some sort of emotional frenzy, and then by that stirring up, we obtain some supernatural obedience guarantee. What in the world did I just say with that? You don't come to Jesus and worship your way into obedience. It's not the way it works. The order is wrong. Okay? Most people are trying this. They try to come to church. They try to get a spiritual buzz. And then they hope they can go out into the world and look like Jesus. Here's the problem. The shelf life is as long as you to your car. I know it. I've seen it. <laughs> okay? The, the shelf life is short. It's small. Okay? So you've got to make sure that you're a person who is, who is uh, getting the order right. What does work is learning God's word and then keeping it. In learning God's word, we understand the goodness of it. And then when we understand the goodness of it and we walk it out, we already are worshiping. Did you know you're supposed to come to church worshiping? You're supposed to come here worshiping. The reason why people are so hit or miss, I think, in American church today is because they're, they're sizing up the church based on what it does for them when they get inside the church. Wrong order. <laughs> you should have come ready. You should have showed up with bells on, ready to worship your creator. Guess what, guess what happens when you do that? It doesn't matter if the drummer's keeping the beat. No, I, w- I wasn't talking about Mark there. I wasn't talking about Mark. It just, I'm just teasing you because you're there. You're there. I have to tease you. Okay, so it doesn't matter. But we gauge everything that way, don't we? He's going to hug him. Thank you. Thank you, Ethan. Go ahead and hug him. That was great. 
the hug's gotten a little too far now. Okay, let's move on. The second principle is found in the latter half of verse 8. Thank you. Social distancing. Anyway, there's also righteous distancing there too. <laughs> okay, the second... Amen. <laughs> You know I'm not getting through this now. Oh, you're a jerk. Anyway, the second principle is found in the latter half of verse 8. Do not forsake me utterly. Everybody watching on Facebook, we're sorry. It's just, this is who we are, right? Okay, this is an interesting bit of language, okay? Do not forsake me utterly. Interesting bit of language. Crying out that God would not forsake David, right? The man after God's own heart seems a strange statement, doesn't it? I don't believe for one second that this is because David thinks that the shoe is going to drop, as we say, that God's going to choose not to love him. God is not flippant. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. That's just not the MO of our creator. Instead, I believe that David understood that God loved him deeply. He understood that God would never forsake him. But I also believe that David, for his part, wanted to remain faithful to his creator. So he wanted to do all that God had asked him. So in other words, David wants to live up to God's call on his life. How many of you is that true for? You want to live up to God's call in your life. So he wants to do what God says. We read similar language from David in various places in the Psalms. Take these for example. Psalm 71.9, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Or uh, Psalm 71, 18, even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. What it appears is hap- what, what appears to be happening here is that David was saying that he wanted God to keep him in service. He wants God uh, to not lay him aside from the doing of the work of the kingdom. Uh, far before the book of James was ever penned, where we read that faith without works is dead, David knew that. And David wanted to work. Again, David understood what I shared at the beginning because of the call to worship. And that is, mercy helps us in our time of trouble. It doesn't give us excuse. Grace is a calling mechanism for us to obedience. It is not giving us a way out. We should want to work for our creator and for our king. David wanted God to restore, to revive him, so that he could always obey his king. Amen? Uh, This is is where we all need to change our position, because there's a lot of work to be done. Can I get an amen? There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of gospel that needs to be preached. And it's more than just a pastor. This is our commission, church. We're to go into all the world. We're to proclaim the name of Jesus. This may be how you feel at times, that God is just going to kind of write you off. But please remember this. God God is not fickle. He is not going to write you off some dreadful day when you're no longer of use according to your standards. He's just not going to do it. We should always humbly approach our king. We should seek his sustaining power in the mission to which we are called. And all of us are called to varying expressions of that same mission. But we should seek his guidance. And like King David, we should declare God to every generation. That's the gospel. So now let's jump in to verses 9 through 16. Starting at verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. 
This is the, the crux of the next seven verses, right? Uh, it would seem that David knew a thing or two about the question that he was posing. Although there is some disagreement as to David's exact age uh, when he wrote this psalm, uh, it appears as though David was old enough to be able to answer his own question confidently, right? This is just the deductions we make of these kinds of things. He's, he's old enough to answer the question. At the very least, verses 10 through 16 show that David is not the young man in view. However, he once was the young man who learned all of these lessons. And though we don't have much information about his upbringing, we can uh, gather a good deal of information concerning his education. We're going to do that this morning. Through his words, through his own words, David, uh, we can see how a young man obtains his way through knowledge. He needed, he needed understanding to keep his way pure. Uh, and through this verse, uh, we're going to see a rare occur- uh, occurrence where he poses a question and answers it right away. But what we're interested in, uh, he says, how do you keep a Uh, How does a young man keep his way pure? By doing what God says, okay? (laughs) Question, answer, done. Nope, that's not enough for a sermon, so I've got to expand it at least 40 minutes longer. So, But what what we want to look at is David's epistemology. That's a fancy word. I'll explain it in just a second. So David, as you know, was the second and greatest king of Israel. Here's a bit of a history lesson. An eloquent poet, we've already seen that. He became one of the most prominent figures in human history. His name means beloved. David means beloved, which we're going to return to in just a second. He was an unlikely hero from man's perspective. He was the youngest of the sons of Jesse, a man of no great rank who lived in a town of no great importance, right? That was Bethlehem, at least at that time, no great importance. Jesse's name, this is important, Jesse's name, David's father, meant Jehovah exists, It also meant firm. Now, Jesse had eight sons and two daughters, which is probably why he needed that name firm, okay? So that's just, you have to do that if you have that many kids. So so Jesse is David's father. And then when we connect the branches of David's family tree, we go to his grandfather. His name was Obed. Obed means worshiper or servant who worships. Now, please don't miss these names. They're really, really important. Jehovah exists, or firm, worshiper, or servant who worships. And Obed was the son of uh, Boaz and Ruth. Now, this brings us to a very well-known character, I think, for most of us. Uh, Boaz means strength or fleetness. Strength or fleetness. Boaz was wealthy. He was an honorable man. He was from the tribe of Judah, uh, not from the tribe of Buddha, but the tribe of Judah. He became the second husband of Ruth, uh, the Moabitess, and obviously is the ancestor of King David and King Jesus. Now, an important fact concerning Boaz is that uh, his great-grandson Solomon named the left pillar of the temple after him. It was, it was called, In It Is Great Strength. This name of this pillar is Boaz, and it means strength. In it is great strength. Now, you may wonder, what in the world does all of this matter? But that's because we don't understand what they understood in ancient times. In ancient times, naming uh, was very meaningful. There was a lot of significance, more than there is today, right? Be it a child, a place, or a temple pillar, <laughs> uh, people didn't simply reference a scroll and pick a popular baby name. Jedediah. Sounds great. Let's go with that. Didn't happen. Instead, they trusted tradition. We see this in the story of John the Baptist. 
When they named John, John, it's a break from tradition. Nobody in your family's named this way. And they listened to God. Sometimes naming was a matter of kingdom significance, but at all times, naming was a matter of personal significance. And what we learned from the names of David's father, David's grandfather, and David's grandfather is that they were men who were faithful to Yahweh. They were faithful to Yahweh, and without question, they taught their family how to live, how to obey God. So in other words, we have three faithful fathers who understood, walked out, and taught God's word as declared in the scriptures. They would have absolutely taught David. They would have taught each other and taught David passages like Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, or Deuteronomy 7, 9. Those passages talk about the sins of the father being revisited on the children to the third and fourth generation. But for those who love God and obey him, to a thousand generations, blessing is supposed to come. So the reason David knew that a young man kept his way pure by walking according to God's word is because he learned this lesson at his father's knee. He learned this lesson from his dad. He had been instructed by men whose very names imply their faithfulness to the task. By the way, we've just discovered how we understand something. Again, epistemology. We've underst- we understand how we arrive at truth. And sometimes it's through looking at all of the, the vectors and tracing them where they land. What we see is names were important. We see that those names signified faithfulness to Yahweh. And that faithfulness to Yahweh necessarily taught David how to be a good man after God's heart. And consequently, David knows the answers to some of his own questions. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. So uh, maybe you're wondering how is it possible that these men were named at the beginning of their lives uh, and that those names were actually accurate. And the answer to that question is that naming in the Bible was often a often had a prophetic element. We've missed that today. We've missed that today. We just pick the popular name or something like that. But there is a prophetic application that I think, or a prophetic element to it that I think is worth seeing. Now, your name might not be as scripturally significant as Boaz, Obed, Jesse, or David. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. But the Bible is very clear that our calling as parents is to teach our children in the way that Jesse and Obed and Boaz did, the same way that David did. Consider what the next man in their family line did. Uh, Consequently, he was known for his wisdom. Solomon said, How can uh, hear my son your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching? So it's clear Solomon learned this from his father and then instructs his own son to do the same thing. Because that's how it's supposed to work. So how do you keep a young man's way pure? You keep it pure by the word of God. How do they learn the word of God? You, you, we, we have to do this job. So so how can our children keep their ways if we don't teach them? They can't. And yet parent after parent after parent today is scratching their head and saying, I don't know what went wrong. Hear me with gentleness, because I actually mean this with gentleness, because there is mercy, there is grace, and there is a way forward. But the answer is, the reason we got here is you. You didn't do it. You didn't obey. I have a, I have a fun time with my daughters. Um, they are amazing human beings, uh, amazing creatures. They're little sinners, but they're amazing human beings. Um, but I, I love my girls, and, 
one of them in particular, since they're all on the front row and I don't want to embarrass them, one of them in particular has a real hard time with saying she's sorry, admitting that she's done something wrong, confessing sin. How, how many of you is that true for and you're old and grown? <laughs> okay, so, so she struggles with this. One of the reasons why we have the cultural problems that we have is connected to this idea. What are you talking about, Nathan? We, for the longest time, have not been able to admit our faults. We are the cause of a lot of things in this life. What we need to do in moving forward is admit it. Admit it. And then correct the action. But instead, we want to hide it. Who are you hiding it from? Who are you hiding it from? Do you think Jesus doesn't know you're a mess? He knows you're a mess. He knows I'm a mess. He knows we're all a mess. That is going to be the notes the Daniels take on my message today. So Pastor Nate said, we're a mess. Anyway, so this is true. This is true. But it's really important. How can our children know? We have to teach them. We have to admit we didn't when we didn't. Okay? The Spirit of God, yes, will teach us. The Word of God is for personal instruction, absolutely. Pastors and teachers are appointed for the church's edification. But the most influential office for communicating God's truth to young men and young women is mom and dad. I'm not usually this guy, but that deserves far more of a round of applause than you gave it. But anyway, the most fundamental, thank you. God is good. The most fundamental office is mom and dad. Do your job. Do your job. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. So uh, some of you look at this and say, okay, Nathan, you talk a lot about dads. You talk a lot about masculinity. That's fine. But what about moms? Read the Bible. It's amazing. You have some amazing moms. Timothy is the product of a faithful mom and a faithful grandmother. Timothy. Timothy's like the dude. Timothy, Timothy's, uh, Jacob Dolezal is Timothy, okay? This is, uh, isn't that true? It's amazing, right? I'm not suggesting that I'm his Paul. I'm just simply saying that he is, he is an awesome young man, and he's faithful at this. And it's clearly his mom's fault he is that way, because it's surely not his dad. No, <laughs> that was a joke. Sorry, Jack, if you're watching. Anyway, but the, the point is, the scripture is filled with that too. Faithful moms, all of us need to do our job, Amen. All of us need to do our job. Okay, what about David's curriculum? What, how, did, how did David learn? How does this teaching work? Or what about this fancy word epistemology? Verse 10, with all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. From David's youth he was trained to tend his father's sheep. That's a rather lowly position if you don't know that. Uh, he was the youngest of the family and so he wasn't brought into public notice. Uh, But still, it pleased God, and this is powerful, it pleased God to raise David from the sheep pasture to the throne of Israel. God makes the last first. He is an amazing God. So during his rise to royalty, David became a warrior. He became a champion. His victory over Goliath made him a marked man. And although David commanded victory after victory, what was amazing about this young man was that he never indulged in empty boasting. Uh, He didn't rely on his own power. Every step of the way, David gave all that recognition and all that glory to God. So what did God do? God gave David victory. What did David do? He gave God glory. That should be our life. God gives us victory. What do we do? 
We give him glory. What is glory given to God? It's worship. What is worship? Obedience. Where do we find out where to obey? God's word. It's all connected. So if God gives us uh, blessing, if God gives us victory, we should obey him. This is common sense, church. It's not common anymore, but it's, it's common sense according to the scriptures. David's upbringing and experience had taught him reliance on God. Whether he was defeating a giant or staying the course, keeping God's commandments, as verse 10 said, we see that he had been taught very well, even from a young age. David's actions displayed the quality of his education. Let me ask you a very pointed question. Do your actions show the quality of your devotion to King Jesus? In other words, do you bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Is your life look the way King Jesus wants it to look? If the answer is no, we repent and we run to the Father. We repent, we run to the Father, and what does He do? He changes our course. He calls us back to the path. He puts us on a sure footing. This is a quick note here, though, about epistemology. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge or how we gain knowledge or the method by which we gain knowledge. The source of our knowledge is God. How many of you know that? It's the source of our knowledge. However, God uses his word, he uses his spirit, and he uses his ministers. He uses moms and dads. He uses brothers and sisters, iron sharpening iron. But all of those represent methods to bring the source, okay? There are there are all these methods, but then there are methods that we might overlook, sub-methods inside of this. For example, we can gain knowledge through reading. We can gain knowledge through reading. How many of you know we can gain knowledge through listening? But we live in a weird culture where it's like, if you don't read an X amount, now listen, I'm a reader, I love to read, I love books, it's a fascinating world, you become, uh, you become more aware, okay, the more you read. I'm not suggesting that you in any way should not read. As a matter of fact, I would suggest the opposite. But I want you to understand something. For eons of time, people learned by word of mouth, didn't they? They listened to the stories of old. And they were taught and shaped by these. Listen, if you don't read well, or if you're, not, you're just not avid in that world, don't let that be your excuse not to gain knowledge. Go to YouTube. Go to YouTube. Listen to pastors and teachers. Listen to your audio Bible. Absorb it. You're effectively doing the same thing that people did in ancient times. The Bible was spoken and people heard it. But absorb that language. So on one hand, we can, we can read. On another hand, we listen. Uh, we can learn for ourselves and we can be taught. That's not an either or. That's a both and. You will learn from others and you will uh, learn on your own. It's an amazing thing. Uh, we can learn in a didactic fashion. That's what you're experiencing right now. Jesus did this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's just a, a dictation. It's a preaching. It's a, it's a message. Or a more Socratic style, which is to be challenging with questions. Jesus challenged lots of people with questions. So he kind of employed both of those ideas. When we explore David's epistemology, how he gets to his information, we begin to see uh, how we keep our way pure. 
We keep our way pure by learning from our fathers and mothers, from our pastors and our teachers, from the scriptures, from the spirit of God. We learn through many ways, and we need to be open to those many ways because they're helping each one of us. How does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to God's word. How do we learn God's word? Absolutely a hundred different ways. Don't get caught up assuming that one method is superior to another. Simply be willing to learn. This is what David was. If we learn a different method tomorrow, great, employ it. They're tools. They're tools for you to grow and to learn. Psalm 119, verses 11 through 13. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Within, uh, with my lips I have told you, uh, told of all the ordinances of your mouth. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. As I stated before, David's name means beloved. And as a beloved of God, David was known for his obedience. That came as a result of the grace he experienced. In verse 11, David introduced us to an all-important safeguard against sin. Quote, I've treasured your word in my heart so that, so that I may not sin against you. There's no guarantee here, church. This doesn't say when you treasure God's word in your heart, you automatically don't sin. It is your gauge against sin. It is the thing that informs you. It is what makes it so you know when the Spirit of God is convicting you, right? There's no guarantee. Everybody knows that even as a new creation, we can and likely do sin on a regular basis. But we don't have to, and we ought to treasure God's Word in our heart and to meditate on it so that we can be uh, pure before God. Obedience for David was far more than a list of moral checkboxes. That's important for us to realize. It's also included carrying on the teaching tradition of his fathers by establishing God's word. Do you know where David established God's word? The book of Psalms. Do you know where David also established the word of God? The truth of God's word? The influence he had on his son Solomon in Proverbs. We can see it all over Solomon's words in Proverbs. We can hear echoes of David. Through and through. Now, this gives me a, a really awesome opportunity to speak to you briefly about inspiration because I've got, I got more to cover and no time. But I want to talk to you about inspiration. There is a weird idea in the church today that believes that inspiration means for God to inspire Holy Scripture, it means that God kind of knocked his ministers into a trance. And he spoke to them in some spiritual highfalutin way. And then they woke up out of the trance and just wrote it all down. That's the idea that seems to be uh, prevalent in, in conversations about inspiration. But practically, that is absurd on every level. Okay, The way inspiration works, and it's not on par with what I'm about to say. I'm just using this as an example. The way inspiration works is the same way that we might say, that inspires me. That inspires me or that motivates me. That moves me, okay? It is on a different level. Don't miss it. But if inspiration was God sent his ministers into a trance, we would have four exactly the same gospels. We would have four gospels that were exactly the same, wouldn't we? Because God put them in a trance, they got it, and they did it. But instead, God uses the personalities, the character of all of his ministers, we have the Apostle Paul saying things, not me or not the Lord, but I say this, but I too believe that I have the Spirit of God. That's in the Scripture, church. 
but it is inspired. It is inspired by God. Solomon's Proverbs, when you read Solomon's Proverbs, anybody who's given any study to extra-biblical material is going to be shocked maybe by this, or anybody who hasn't is going to be shocked by this statement. But many of Solomon's Proverbs, many of the Proverbs Solomon uttered have been found long before Solomon ever existed. We know this as a fact. Why is this okay as a Christian? It's okay because all wisdom still comes from God. And God uses those sources and he communicates to his people. Do you guys think that we have Solomon, do we have wisdom from the book of Job? Do we have wisdom from the book of Job? Yes, we have wisdom from the book of Job. Guess what? Book of Job, oldest book in the Bible. And, and guess what? Solomon used it. Well, it's not really inspiration unless God says it to Solomon. God did. He just did it a different way than you're used to. Inspiration is a powerful idea if you understand it rightly. And so when you read Proverbs, you go, oh, there's dad. David's right there. You can hear him in Solomon's ear. It's the same way that you're going to be to your kids if you'll be faithful in your teaching. You will inspire your kids. Now, what do I suggest you inspire them with? God's word. (laughs) But what I'm telling you is you will inspire your kids. So speak to them. Speak to them the truths of God's word. Solomon says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Gee, I wonder where he got this method. Dad, granddad, great-granddad, great-great-grandpappy. Everybody is telling him this. It's inspiration. This is what's happening. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Where did Solomon learn that? David. David and his grandfather and his great-grandfather. Admittedly, a strange line, Psalm 119, verse 13. Let me read that again for you. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. Admittedly, that's a strange line, but it doesn't have to be as awkward as we might imagine it to be. It's unlikely that David is saying here that he went out and shouted scripture in the streets. How many of you are relieved now? (laughs) You don't have to go shout it in the streets. It's more likely that he looked like, by doing this, he looked like Paul in Athens. What did Paul do in Athens? Well, he reasoned in the public square. It looked more like the preacher in church to the faithful he was teaching. It looked more uh, like a father speaking to his son. So you can fulfill verse 13 in your life if you just look at it through this lens. You must declare all of the words of God's mouth to the people that God has put in your life to train. Again, as I said before, the call of a godly mother and a father is to tell their children of all the ordinances of God's mouth. Uh, Sarah and I do this each and every morning. I've shared this many times at the breakfast table. Uh, I've shared this with you, that we do this at the breakfast table. We are going currently going through the book of Proverbs. We have four daughters under the age of eight. They don't get everything I'm talking about. I don't get everything I'm talking about. No. Uh, so they don't get everything that we're talking about, but we take it slow for them, don't we? I mean, that's what, what our goal is. We take it slow. We walk them through it. We ask him questions. I encourage you to do that. We had this modeled for us in a very powerful way. We looked at that and said, we want to do that. We're hoping that our kids after us will walk in that same truth and walk in that same way. So I encourage you to employ some practical methods. Okay, let's, let's draw this whole thing to a close. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. 
Charles Spurgeon once said that delight in the word of God is a sure proof that it has taken effect in your life. Not only should you love God's word, you should like God's word, you should delight in God's word, and it proves you actually walk in God's word. It's taken root inside of your heart. So I want you to, I want you to, to see this, that we are to be a people who rejoice in God's word. David not only knew that the word of God would keep our ways pure, but he also knew that in continual obedience, we prove God's word to be good and true. The natural result of this is to rejoice in it, as I said. Learn, do God's word, and worship flows. Notice David said, I have rejoiced. I have rejoiced. Again, David knew this truth. It's past tense. He had lived this all of his life. We should listen to somebody with that experience. Also, take note of the level of David's rejoicing. As much as in all riches... Jesus told us in the scripture that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and all of its righteousness and all the other stuff, that'll be added. We're to abandon all for that pearl of great price, which is the kingdom of God. Paul told us that we are to count everything as loss compared to knowing Jesus. Today, we appear to have another thing backwards. We rejoice in all the riches that we have and we hide God's statutes and we hide his word away from the world and even our families. We don't want to talk about it. It's antiquated. It's got hard to deal with stuff in it. We don't want to be labeled. We're a bunch of Bible thumpers. We're fundamentalists. We're this, we're that. This is not the way we're supposed to be. This is not a heart like David had. I've said it before, along with many other pastors throughout the years, we seem to proclaim the wonders of our newest gadget more than we proclaim the wonders of our king. We evangelize an iPhone every day. And I guarantee you guys would not want to tell me how long it's been since you actually proclaimed the gospel to somebody. This is not, this is not on balance, church. This is not on balance. David said he rejoices as with all riches. And we rejoice in riches and nothing else. Verse 15 and 16, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Have you ever had something you just can't stop thinking about? You ever had something you just can't stop thinking about? You know what that's called? Meditation. Something you just can't stop thinking about. Ever asked yourself why you can't stop thinking about it? Whether we know it or not, the answer is always the same. Whatever that thing is, it is taken over first place in our minds. The reason you can't stop thinking about it is because it's become an idol. It's something that you worship. And I don't care, church, if it's your kids. It can be an idol. It can be something that you worship. God is supposed to be first. His kingdom is supposed to be first. Seek first the kingdom. We shouldn't think for one second that placing something first doesn't require effort, though. To place God first is going to require effort. Also, we shouldn't presume that this effort makes our devotion fake. Just because you have to put effort into something doesn't make it fake or disingenuous. Instead, what's happening is you're being trained. You're learning self-control. You're learning discipline. These are all good things, all a part of sanctification. All of these things are crucial to teaching and training our children to follow God. All of these things are crucial for us. 
The call to change what we pursue first was issued by King Jesus himself. Put him first. Put his kingdom first. Seek it first. Put everything else aside and go after him. That was our call. That's what Jesus said. We've got to get back on the, on the bus here to do this. The last thought is this. The parallel between verses 16 and verse 8 of the previous sermon. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Psalm 119.8. And I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Psalm 119.16. There's no other language like this in the rest of this psalm. The parallel and the nuance cannot be overlooked in that light. They both begin by keeping and delighting in God's statutes. We keep God's statutes. We delight in God's statutes. They both end in a unique way. God not forsaking David and David not forsaking God. Or his word more specifically. David has said, Lord, I will keep your statutes. Sustain me in my effectiveness. And Lord, I will delight in your statutes. I will delight in your statutes. Help me to delight in your statutes. And then let me not forget them. Let me walk in them all the days of my life. I shall keep your statutes. Don't forsake me. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget you. All of this comes with God's word. So here's, here's how we wrap it all up, and the worship team can come on up. We have got to begin to be a people who delight in God's word, but I'm not talking about some strange bragging to people like, you know, well, I know this many verses and this, you know, this kind of thing. And I'm not talking about um, <laughs> being good at Bible trivia. That would be fun, but... but I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about delighting in God's word so much that it becomes the meditation of your heart. That it becomes the thing when you wake up, you say, I'm hungering and I'm thirsting for his truth. Right? It should be something that says, I want God's word to be so much a part of my life, I am willing to teach it to my children every day, every moment I have a chance. That's what it means to delight in God's word. It doesn't just mean to collect Bibles. I got plenty of them. That, that doesn't do you any good. It also doesn't do any good if you read the words, but you don't see what they're talking about. Pharisees had that problem. What, what is really important, what it means to delight yourself in the word of God is for you to, to consume this, to long for it, to desire it, and then to proclaim it, to obey it, and to walk in worship all the days of your life. Church, we need to be a people who know the answer to the question. How does a young man, how does a young woman, how does an older gentleman, and how does an older woman keep their way pure? Do what God says. Where do we find what God says? In his word. We've got to consume this more and more every day of our life. That's what it means to rejoice in God's word. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.